can we know we're saved? That question is asked by so many Christians and has been over the centuries. The Bible gives us a definitive answer to that question. Passages like 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, tell us unequivocally that the things that have been written in God's word are written so that we may know that we have eternal life. You can know you're in a right relationship with God. The Bible speaks about having full assurance of knowledge, Colossians 2, verse 2. It speaks about full assurance of understanding, knowing that you're in a right relationship with Him, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. We can know we're saved. But a follow-up question to that is, how can I know that I'm saved? Maybe that's the question that we really ought to be focusing on. One of the things that people need to realize when it comes to salvation is that salvation is conditional. What must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16, verse 30. That's an important question. You and I need to ask that question and find the answer in Scripture. But there's a problem in only thinking about the conditions, in only thinking about the what must I do. The problem with that is that we can spend so much time focusing on what I need to do to be saved that we don't spend enough time and give enough emphasis to what God has done to save us. It's not just a matter of rhetoric and it's not just a matter of thinking about what Jesus did. Yes, he died on the cross and I believe that and, and those kinds of things. When we read scripture, I come to the conclusion that God wants us to spend a great amount of our time remembering and pondering the cross of Jesus and what it means. And one of the ways in which we answer the question, can we know we're saved, is not by looking at what we're doing, but looking at what he did and thinking about its implications for our lives. That's the focus of our study tonight. If you have a Bible, look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want you to notice the highlighted words. God has done for us what the law could never do. The law is a doctor that can diagnose your sin, diagnose your sickness, but cannot provide a cure. But God provided a cure for us. And the cure came in the form of his very own son who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, it says here. And the Bible teaches that when Jesus died for us, he made it possible for the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us. Said another way, Jesus made it by his work, by his death, so that you and I can stand before God cleansed, forgiven of our sins. The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. There's also a condition there. Remember I said, what must I do to be saved? There are conditions who walk lifestyle, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Spend some time with me this evening thinking about what God has done for us so that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. 
four points to our study tonight. And the first one is this. When we think about what Jesus has done, we must realize, first of all, that he was uniquely qualified to die for us. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else has the properties, possesses the qualities that Jesus does. He is unique in every way. And because of his uniqueness, he alone has the ability to save you and me from our sin. Specifically, Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. The Bible teaches this about him. He never compromised. He never broke even one of God's laws. Hebrews 4 verse 15 reminds us that our high priest is able to sympathize with us. He knows what we go through when we face temptation, but it says that he was tempted in all places like we are, yet without sin. Jesus is sinless. And Peter emphasizes this as well in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus could be your sacrifice because he was sinless. He was perfect. He had no sins of his own to pay for. Therefore, he can pay for yours and for mine. Not only is he unique because of his sinless life, but he's unique because he died willingly. There have been critics over the years that have, that have rejected or tried to, tried to play down the idea that Jesus died vicariously for us, that Jesus died in our place. And one of the criticisms that people make is this, if God is love, how is it loving to take somebody who's innocent and make them die for somebody who's guilty? How is that loving? And they're right in a sense, if the one who is innocent does not die willingly. But the fact is that Jesus very clearly said that he was not only willing, he was ready to die for us. John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Watch those words. Jesus is saying, nobody's forcing me to do this. I'm doing it of my own choice. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. The Father willed for Jesus to be the sacrifice, but make no mistake, Jesus willingly died for you and me. He desired to do this because he loves us so much. Hebrews 12 verse 2 commands us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That sounds like a willingness, doesn't it? despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus died willingly. He's qualified to die in your place. Not only is he willing, but the Bible teaches that he's equally related to God and man. He's a perfect mediator. That's what that, that term means, to be a mediator, a go-between. Jesus can reconcile God and man, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, because he is both God and man. He's equally related to both parties. 
He knows what God stands for and who God is because he is God. John chapter one, verses one through three. But he also knows what you and I endure as human beings because he's man as well. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. He's a mediator, the only one unique that's able to go between us and God on our behalf. He's also the only one who could save people by dying for them. It was proclaimed by him in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's one of those absolute declarative statements that you just cannot ignore. If I'm going to be right with God, if I'm going to know that I'm saved, it is only through Jesus that that's ever going to happen. No other way can I know that I'm saved unless I go through him. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, the apostles proclaimed, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is uniquely qualified to die for us. He was perfect. He was willing. He is a perfect mediator because of his nature. He is the only one who can do what he's done for you. So one of the questions I have to ask myself and you as well, can I know I'm saved? One of the questions I have to ask is, has Jesus died for me? Have I, have I accepted the gift, the sacrifice that he's made for me? Think about this secondly as we emphasize what God has done in saving us from our sin. Not only is Jesus uniquely qualified, but he died as a substitute for us. When I was younger in high school, we would sometimes have a substitute teacher. And the substitute teacher was somebody who would come and be a stand-in, obviously, for the regular teacher. Somebody who would take the teacher's place. The substitute teacher was often just given a list of things to do, had the kids do some worksheets, things like that. But the idea of a substitute, one who stands in the place of another, fills the void left by another. That idea is found in scripture regarding what Jesus has done for us. You and I de demanded that we needed to pay a penalty because of our sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we're owed. That's the penalty we must pay because of sin. And what the Bible teaches is that Jesus died for and the Greek word is hooper, H-U-P-E-R. And it means in substitution or in behalf of us. Jesus was put in my place. He was put in your place. And there are an astounding number of scriptures that emphasize this. It's almost as if God wants us to think about this constantly. Jesus died for me. He died in my place. He took the penalty that was owed to me. The sins that I've committed have been laid upon him. That's what God has done in sending his son to die for me. In Romans 5 verse 8, the Bible tells us, consider the love of God. It's manifest to us in that while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who bear in our place? In Romans 8, verse 32, speaking of Jesus, it says, God did not spare him, but gave him up for us all. Jesus died for you in your place. 
He is the substitute for your sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. That was the core, the heart of the gospel that Paul preached, the good news. You don't have to bear the penalty of your sin. You don't have to carry those things around anymore. Jesus has taken the burden away if you'll just let him. He died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, because one died, we believe one has died for all. Again, in Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4, he gave himself for our sins. There's the willingness and the love of Jesus offering himself, and there's the purpose of his offering on behalf of, as a substitute for our sins. We need to get it through our heads. We need to get it into our hearts that salvation does not depend on how much good we can do. Our salvation depends on the sacrifice that he has already given for us. That's the good news of the gospel. What does that mean, John? Are you saying that, that Christians shouldn't live a moral, righteous life? Are you saying that we shouldn't serve people and love people? No, the Bible tells us to do those things, but that's not why you're saved. You're saved because Jesus died for you. That's what he did. He took those sins away. He loved us and gave himself up for us as a substitute in behalf of us. Ephesians 5 and verse 2. Jesus died as a substitute. He took our place. Just like a mama bear when she sees her cubs being threatened will stand up against any danger. A mama bear is nothing to be trifled with to be sure, but sometimes a mama bear will go to her own death on behalf of her cubs. So it is with Jesus, a vicarious substitute in our place. He took the burden. He took the full force of the guilt of our sin. He has taken those things away by what he did at the cross. When we ask the question, can I know I'm saved? This better be part of the answer we give ourselves because it's the answer the Bible gives. He's your substitute and he's mine. Am I thinking about that? Am I trusting in that? Consider this as we consider the idea of Jesus being a substitute for our sin. The Bible is clear that his death was accepted by God. You know, sometimes we have a problem with this question of assurance because we don't accept his death. We don't think it was enough. We don't spend enough time contemplating what his substitutionary sacrifice means for us. But I want you to know the Bible's really clear. God accepted what Jesus did. God took that and was satisfied with it. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 11, 700 years before Jesus was even born. Looking through the, 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 the future, Isaiah wrote this, out of the anguish of his soul, speaking about Jesus, he, God, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God's talking about his son and what his son was going to do, the work that was going to be accomplished. God was going to look upon the work that Jesus did. He was going to be satisfied with it. And not only that, he was going to account many righteous based on what his son was going to do. His son was going to bear people's iniquities, all the ugliness, all the terrible nature of sin. Jesus has taken that upon himself, and God is satisfied with that. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. The phrase there means a sin offering, a sacrifice. He made him to be a sacrifice, an offering who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, God is saying to us, I'm satisfied with what Jesus has done. The offering that he's given, I can accept that in your place. As a matter of fact, this was my plan from the very beginning, to make Christ an offering for sin and to accept what he's done on your behalf so that in him you can become the righteousness of God. Another passage, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Hebrews writer is saying some astounding things here. He's saying that Jesus paid it all. He's saying that there's nothing left to do in terms of removing sin. You and I just need to accept by faith what Jesus has offered us. By obedient, submissive, walking in the light kind of faith, we are accepting the sacrifice that God has already accepted. And we're saying, yes, I want that to be my sacrifice too. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. Can I ask you a question? Has he borne your sins? Have you let him do that? Have you allowed Jesus to carry this burden of your sins? Because you can't pay the penalty for those. You can't stand before God and somehow turn out to be righteous if Jesus doesn't bear, if his offering hasn't paid for your sin. God accepted his sacrifice. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light, there's our lifestyle. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice what John says. Walking in the light is important. It's vital. It's essential. But what's cleansing us from sin? It's not our walk in the light that's cleansing us from sin. It's the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago that's cleansing us from our sin. Isn't that what the passage teaches? Walking in the light, that's the condition. But the cleansing of the blood, the work that was done, we need to think more about the implications of that. In Revelation 5, verse 9, John sees a prophetic image, a vision of the crucified Christ, the lamb that was slain. And the Bible says that all around his throne, they were singing a new song saying, Worthy are you, talking to Jesus here, the lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus died for you and God has accepted that sacrifice as a worthy and a viable and a successful substitute for your sin. I say again, nobody else can do for you what Jesus did. Nobody else can ever pay the price for your sin. Either you're gonna bear the weight and the penalty of your sin, or you're going to allow Jesus to do it. There is no door number three. There is no option beyond that. 
That's why we preach the gospel as good news. The good news is you don't have to stand before your maker and be guilty. You don't have to stand before your maker and be unrighteous. Jesus has done the work. Can I know I'm saved? Absolutely, without a question, because of what Jesus did. And we don't spend enough time thinking about what he's done for us. I'm convinced of that. I believe one of the reasons why the Lord wants us to observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week is because he wants us to reflect on this sacrifice and its implications for our lives. Not just the suffering of Jesus, but what it means to us and why we're able to stand before God and be not guilty, justified. God accepted what he did. We need to accept that as well. And so think about this with me forth tonight. This is the application. Can I know I'm saved? One of the answers I would give somebody who's asking that question would be this. You need to make sure that you are putting your confidence, your trust, your entire weight in him and not in yourself. You need to make sure you're doing that. It's not about what I do. It's about what he's done. Are you saying that obedience is not important? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible teaches that obedience is essential to salvation. But the ground, the foundation, the basis for our salvation is what Jesus did at the cross. Consider with me for a moment Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Grace is God's part. Faith is man's part. It's by grace that you've been saved, but faith was the avenue. When I trusted and obeyed what God told me to do, I was saved. But the emphasis of this verse is on grace, on what God has done. And so he goes on in the very next phrase to say this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He's talking about what Jesus did at the cross. He's saying that's how you're saved. That's the ground of your assurance. That's the ground of your confidence. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We can't stand around in a bunch of a multitude of spiritual people that have lived their lives for Jesus and say, well, what did you do for Jesus? What sacrifice did you make? How did you earn your stars to be here? How did you find your way here? What kinds of astounding and wonderful and amazing things have you done for the Lord? No, everybody that's righteous can only confess this. The only reason I'm righteous is because of the blood of somebody who was sinless, who died for me. I was saved by grace through faith. It was not of my own works. It was the gift of God. Salvation was for me. And now notice this, when I'm putting my confidence in Jesus and not in myself, Ephesians 2 verse 10, we sometimes just skip right over, but watch what happens. When I accept what Jesus has done for me, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, and that Greek word means for the purpose of good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. There's a lifestyle word in them. Why do we do good as Christians? Why do we try to live a moral, righteous, holy life before our God as Christians? 
it's not because we're trying to somehow merit or be good enough to be saved. That's not why we're doing it. The reason why we're living a moral, righteous life as Christians is because that's what we've been created in Christ to do. When Jesus saves us from our sins, we become the workmanship of God. We listen to his word continually. We abide in his teachings always. We allow his thoughts and his principles and scripture to sink down deeply into our hearts and ears because we are now his workmanship. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what you're all about now as a Christian. You're a do-gooder. You're a worker of what is good. You're someone who has devoted your life now because you've been saved, because of the substitution that Jesus made for you. Now you're devoted to walking in a pattern of good works for all your life. Can I know I'm saved? Unequivocally, absolutely, without a question, yes. But don't forget that in answering that question, while 2 Peter chapter 1 has a place that we talked about last time, Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 have a place as well. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on behalf of sin that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law not because of what we're doing, but because of what Jesus has done. Give him the credit and put your confidence and trust in him. How do I enter a relationship with Jesus Christ? You need to listen to the good news. Something like what we've been proclaiming tonight is essential. It's foundational to the understanding of what it means to be a New Testament Christian. That's why Paul says messages like this one are the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Put your confidence in Jesus who died for you. That's what it means to believe. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you just say, well, yeah, I think that he died for me. No, believing means I'm gonna put my confidence. I'm gonna stand before God one day and he's the one I wanna trust. He's the one I wanna give an answer for me. He's the one whose blood I want to cover me. I believe in him. He died for me while I was still a sinner, Romans 5, verse 8. I believe that. I believe it with all my heart. You have to say those things. Repent of your sins, Acts 3, verse 19. Repent and turn again that we might receive seasons of refreshing from the Lord. And again, confess the name of Jesus. He's my Lord. He's the one that God has sent to ransom me, to purchase me, to be my substitute for sin. And then be buried and raised with Christ in baptism, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. These are the conditions, but the work's been done by Jesus himself. We do not teach that we earn our way to heaven. We teach that Jesus has paid it all. And we, by humble, faithful submission to his will, can accept what he offers. Do you need to do that? Get in contact with someone from the church here if you're interested in talking about these matters further. Let's close tonight this lesson by singing a song and thinking about what it means to be a worker for the Lord. It means not that I'm earning anything, but that I am gladly living my life as his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works.